But Jesus wants his disciples to know that God's wish for them is that their life would be fruitful. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That you and I will become convinced that God wants your life and my life to bear fruit. More fruit. Much fruit. Fruit that pleases him that counts for all eternity. And so let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. You'll remember that this is part of the upper room discourse that began back in John chapter 13. Jesus and the twelve are in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They've gathered there to celebrate the Passover meal together. Just Jesus and the twelve alone in the privacy of an upper room. It's an intimate and private setting. But the time for Jesus' departure is at hand. And Jesus, getting up from the table, had washed each of the disciples' feet. Remember? An extravagant, unprecedented display of his love for them. But then he makes three troubling announcements. He first says that one of you here in the room with me is going to hand me over to my enemies. And after having been identified, Judas Iscariot leaves the room. Secondly, he said, I am going to leave you. And where I am going, you cannot follow. And finally, the third announcement was directed at Peter, the twelve spokesperson. A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. In other words, before the sun rises the very next day. And so we should not be surprised when Chapter 14 opens with Jesus dealing with troubled hearts. He offered the solution, believe in God, believe also in me. But then he continued by prescribing some specific antidotes for troubled hearts. In verses 1 to 6, he, he suggests the, the hope of heaven. In verses 7 to 15, he talks about knowing our Father who is in heaven. In verses 15 to 24, he promises help is on the way. Help is coming from heaven. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 25 to 31. And he shared some of the benefits that we would result from his departure. For his disciples, but also for himself. And that brings us to the verses that we want to focus on this morning, here in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Where Jesus, in preparing his disciples for what was about to take place, has turned from caring for their troubled hearts talking about fruit-bearing. Jesus' followers are fruit-bearers, period. They are all fruit-bearers by design and by decision. If you're able, please stand with me as I read from John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And we'll just read down to the end of verse 11 this morning. It's a great passage of scripture. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there is none like you. Nor is there any God besides you. We look to your word as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Thank you for this divine self-disclosure. Forgive us for those times when we take it for granted, ignore it, or even dismiss it because we don't like what it is requiring of us. Admittedly, apart from this special revelation, we're lost. The blind leading the blind. So help us to take full advantage of these opportunities to read and reflect and study this divinely inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient disclosure of your person your plans, and, and your purposes. Specifically, as we read and reflect on this analogy and its implications, as first told by Jesus and then preserved here in John chapter 15 by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the, the Spirit, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we might become increasingly adequate, both individually and collectively, equipped for every good work. By your power and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these verses, Jesus is continuing to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. He has turned the page, so to speak, from addressing troubled hearts. He is now focusing on living lives that bear fruit. Did you notice the progression in the passage? From no fruit to fruit to more fruit and to much fruit. Jesus wanted these 11 to be absolutely convinced that Jesus' followers are fruit bearers. And he used a grapevine illustration to communicate that message. But Jesus' followers are fruit bearers by design. The design involves three contributors, Jesus, the Father, and you. You meaning, of course, the 
11 disciples who are still with him in the room, in that upper room that night. But can I just say not exclusively? You see, by implication, it includes all of us who have placed our trust and our faith, who believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, as one of the contributors, as the vine, contributes nourishment and vitality. I am the true vine. This is the seventh of Jesus' I am claims. Seventh of seven. I am the bread of life, promising to satisfy our spiritual hunger. I am the light of the world, a promise to deliver us from darkness, spiritual darkness. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And number seven, I am the vine, a promise that our life can be fruitful. And each of these claims in their unique settings were appropriate and timely self-disclosures, inviting us to experience life the way God intends it to be lived. Perhaps here in John chapter 15, the taste of the contents of that cup are still lingering on the eleven's lips and in, in their mouths as they hear Jesus make this claim. Remember? And he had taken the cup and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that became the basis of what we celebrated last week, the Lord's Supper. And certainly these disciples were all too aware of how Israel national identity was, was tied to the vine. The Jews were convinced that they were God's vine. And rightly so. For good reason. Let me give you just a couple of examples from the Old Testament scriptures. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, the psalmist write, wrote, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out nations and planted it. Clearly, a reference to Israel being taken from Egyptian slavery through the wilderness into the promised land. The land that God had promised would one day be theirs. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 reads, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. and The men of Judah are the gardens of his delight. Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. But the Old Testament goes on to tell the sad story of Israel. How they forfeited their fruit-bearing privilege due to persistent, stubborn, hard-heartedness, unbelief, and a chronic case of unfaithfulness and disobedience. They turned from the one true God in order to worship the worthless idols of their pagan neighboring nations. It's a sad story. And so here in John chapter 15, we have Jesus coming along and saying, I am the true vine. 
True meaning ideal, perfect, real, genuine. I am the legitimate vine. Like Esau, Israel has sold their birthright. Listen to the Lord's commentary in Isaiah chapter 5. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Verse 7. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness. Instead, he heard cries of violence. One commentator offers the following amplification of Jesus' claim here in John chapter 15. You all know how Israel is pictured as a vine that is meant to produce refreshing fruit. Well, I am the fulfillment of all that symbol suggests. It's quite a claim. Can you imagine being one of the eleven that night and hearing Jesus make that claim? Jesus' followers are fruit bearers by design. And Jesus contributes to that design as a source of nourishment and vitality. The Father, as the vine dresser, or as the gardener, as some translations translate it, contributes time and expertise. I have to admit that I really have no idea what it takes to be a good vine dresser. Closest I've come to grapevines is driving through the Niagara Peninsula. But look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You may want to underline in your Bibles those two phrases. He takes away and he prunes. Whatever else a vine dresser does, I don't know, but two things I know that he does. He takes branches away and he prunes branches. And notice it's every branch. It's not selective. Every branch. And every branch that does not produce fruit is taken away. Now, here's where the controversy begins. Because there's another legitimate translation of that phrase. It can just as easily read, he lifts it up. So, which is it? On the one hand, we have the vine dresser getting rid of branches, non-producing branches. On the other hand, the vine dresser is lifting them up so that at some future time, these branches will be able to produce fruit. Now, let me just say that the scripture does acknowledge that there are those who associate or identify with Jesus. They claim to be believers. They engage in local churches. They, they go off to Bible college and seminaries. And they may even lead exemplary lives. But they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They have not come to grips with their own depravity and repented of their sin. They are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They are in him in the sense that they're associated with him or somehow identified with him. But they are not in him 
in the way the, the Apostle Paul refers to those who are in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They're not that. Remember John chapter 6, verse 60? Jesus has just made the claim, I am the bread of life. And he follows it up with some teaching that have blessed some of his disciples' concern. In fact, they respond with these words in verse 60. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And by verse 30, and by verse 66, just six verses later, we read these words. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They had been identified and associated with Jesus, but they had not believed in him. And when the teaching got tough, they departed. Let's move a little closer to John chapter 15. We have, of course, Judas Iscariot. My goodness. One of the original 12. Handpicked by Jesus himself. But in John chapter 13, having been identified by Jesus as the one who was going to hand him over to his enemies, Judas took the piece of bread and went out quickly into the night. He left them, departed from them. You see, Judas was identified and associated with Jesus in a most intimate way for two and a half years. And yet he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Perhaps these unfruitful branches, taken away by the Father, represented followers who identified and associated with Jesus without ever having believed in him as the Christ, the Son of God. It's possible. Others have suggested that not every branch of the vine will bear fruit continuously in all seasons. Therefore, they prefer to see the Father spending some extra time and giving some extra attention, TLC, if you will, to those fruitless branches so that they will eventually have the opportunity to bear fruit and more fruit, the fruit that he intends them to bear. Rather than taking them away, they see him as lifting them up. Regardless of where you land, in the lifting up camp or, or maybe the, the throwaway camp, every branch that does not produce fruit is going to be attended to by the vine dresser. Every branch. And so is every branch that does produce fruit. The fruit-bearing branches are pruned. Pruning. The word even seems uncomfortable. Sounds painful. And certainly the Father's pruning in our lives could involve pain and suffering. 
But Jesus did not elaborate on what that pruning might involve. But he does disclose the purpose of the pruning so that they may bear more fruit. So whatever it is, whatever is keeping you and I from bearing more fruit, that's what the Father will be working to eliminate from your life and my life. Sin? For sure. Bad attitudes? Of course. Bitterness? Definitely. A love for the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, snip, snip, snip. All that and much more. Anything that is preventing you and me from producing more fruit. Both the barren and the fruit-bearing branches will be attended to by the Father. Because the Father is all about you and I bearing fruit. More fruit. And much fruit. Jesus' followers are fruit bearers by design. And the Father contributes to that design as a vine dresser, removing and pruning. The third contributor, of course, are the eleven. As the branches, they contribute fruit-bearing potential. And again, by implication, this would include all genuine followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, Jesus is assuring his disciples, the eleven, that in spite of the Father's pruning, his words have cleansed them. Notice verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Flip back to John chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus had been washing his disciples' feet, you'll remember. And when he came to Peter, Peter objected. He said, no way, you're not washing my feet. But Jesus insisted. And so Peter, you know, true to character, the pendulum swings, and he asked to go for a bath. From head to toe, then wash me. And this is Jesus' response. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it is completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. Remember? Judas is still in the room. In fact, verse 11 goes on. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Judas had not been cleansed by Jesus' words. But the remaining 11, they were clean. And the Father's pruning would not change that reality. No matter how painful or how discouraging or how they were feeling at the moment, they were clean. And so there are only two options. Branches that do not bear fruit and branches that bear fruit. Nourished by Jesus and attended to by the Father, Jesus wanted his disciples to be absolutely convinced in their minds 
and in their hearts that they were designed to bear fruit. And so are you. And so am I. As followers of Jesus, we are fruit bearers by design. We are nourished by Jesus and tended to by the Father so that we will bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Jesus' followers are fruit bearers. End of sentence. We're fruit bearers by design and also by decision. Jesus' followers are fruit bearers by decision. Choosing to abide in Jesus or remaining in him fulfills the fruit-bearing prerequisite. Look at verse 4. John chapter 15. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is actually appealing to them to fulfill their relational responsibility so that they can enjoy this increasingly intimate relationship. Jesus has already made his commitment. Remember back in John chapter 14, verse 7. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. A promise was that the Holy Spirit of God would indwell each one of them. You see, Jesus, he's all in. But as we know, relationships are always a a two-way street. And so Jesus was making his appeal for his disciples to fulfill their relational responsibilities by choosing to abide in him. Abide in me, and I in you. The word translated abide describes something that remains where it is. It is stationary, fixed in place. It endures. The Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthians come to mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Here in John, Jesus is imploring the eleven to be steadfast, immovable, always working on the relationship with him. Abide in me. And I in you. If repetition in the scriptures is intended to emphasize importance and highlight the necessity of something, then you and I would have to be like dumber than a bag of hammers not to understand the relationship between abiding and bearing fruit. Here we find the word translated abide 11 times in just seven verses. Like, are are we getting the message? Hello? Abide, abide. Abide. Abiding in Christ is to fruit-bearing what strings are to Jeff's guitar, what a puck is to a hockey game, what pencil is to a lead or ink is to a pen. It's indispensable. And abiding in Christ 
assumes that we are trusting him alone for our salvation. It assumes that. John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who will believe in his name. It assumes that we've done that. But then, no matter what this life throws at you, you insist on choosing to trust in him through it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Remember the last chapter, chapter 14, begins with, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in God also in me. And Jesus knew that these disciples were heading into some pretty deep water. Abide in me means trusting him through life's challenges. Abiding means that we obey him even when we don't feel like it. When it seems inconvenient or doesn't make sense when everybody else is heading in the exact opposite direction. And we obey not because we have to, but because we want to, because we we love him. It's an expression of our love. That's Abiding. Abiding in Christ means that we're going to pursue a more intimate relationship with him. We're going to get to know him by, by reading his word. We're going to communicate with him through, through prayer. We're going to acknowledge our complete dependence on him. In case you missed it in verse 4. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. And we know that. We accept that. That's abiding. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, listen, we all know that we can do something. But we can't bear fruit. Not the kind of fruit that Jesus was talking about. The importance of abiding in Jesus can never be overestimated. Especially when it comes to fruit bearing. Choosing to abide in Christ fulfills the fruit bearing prerequisite. And choosing to abide in Jesus embraces the fruit-bearing incentives. And Jesus gives several of them the rest of this passage. Let's look at these incentives that he kind of holds out to his disciples in a way that would motivate them or inspire them to desire to abide in him so that their lives will be fruitful. We'll move through these fairly quickly. The, the first one's a little complicated, but I promise the next ones will go quicker. The first incentive is to avoid uselessness. Who wants to be useless? To be thrown away like those branches and burned up like a disposable disciple. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, there's all kinds of debate around these verses, this verse specifically. Some see verse 6 as evidence. There you go. Believers can lose their salvation. They use it to attack the doctrine of eternal security. The fact is that this passage is 
focusing on fruitfulness, not talking about salvation. They violate the fundamental principle of interpretation. Consider the context. The scriptures offer convincing support for the eternal security of believers. Once saved, always saved. Let me draw your attention to just one example from the Gospel of John. We studied it earlier in John chapter 10. Jesus said this, beginning at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. It's interesting. It's eternal life. It's not life until you don't want it anymore or until someone takes it away from you. It's eternal. But let's continue to read on. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. All God's people said, Amen. Let it be so. I don't see this passage in John chapter 15 teaching that true believers can lose their salvation. We are based on whether they're fruitful or not. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and we're kept there by Almighty God the one who is greater than all. And no one and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. But even among those who take this eternal damnation off the table, there's still debate. We can't seem to decide what these discarded branches are all about. And some of it is we get caught up in that little word fire. As soon as we see fire, we think, uh-oh, that's the place where we don't want to end up. That's referring to hell. But let's stick within the confines of the analogy, the illustration. It's a vineyard. It's a vineyard. Some see the discarded branches as believers who have been shelved or benched, so to speak put on the sidelines, taken out of the game. They are branches who forfeited opportunities for, for fruit-bearing and, and for giftedness. Others see that as a loss of reward. When believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ, these ones will go away empty-handed. They've squandered their opportunities, spent their lives building with wood, hay, and stubble, been caught up and preoccupied with perishable and temporal things. Reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes where the preacher talks about life being vanity of vanities, a chasing after the wind. They see these branches as those kinds of people spent their life chasing after the wind. Still others, and I would probably put myself in this camp, they view the discarded branches as believers who have become as useless to the Father in accomplishing his plans and purposes as those branches that are discarded and burned at the end of the grape-bearing season. Just useless. The point is, Jesus is encouraging his followers to avoid any of those scenarios. By choosing to abide in him. If we abide in Christ, we avoid living useless, meaningless lives. The words from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, we avoid all that running after the wind, choose to abide in Christ, will enable us to be useful rather than useless. The second incentive is answered prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish 
and it will be done for you. An effective prayer life. As we choose to abide in Christ, we'll be able to ask God for the right things that, at the right time. In a sense, our requests will be in keeping with his plans and purposes. It's almost as though his thoughts become our thoughts. And his plans become our prayer requests. As a result, God answers our prayers. There are a couple of incentives in verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so that you prove to be my disciples. The fruit of of an abiding disciple's life glorifies God, and it also gives evidence that they are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Personally, we have assurance of our salvation. We become a living testimony to other people. Ordinary, uneducated men and women who others take note They've been with Jesus, those people. They're different, in a good way. Not odd, but different. They will know we are Christians by our fruit. We'll become Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 followers. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds, Good fruit, and glorify your Father in heaven. Look at verses 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Does that sound at all familiar? Flip back to John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. As we abide in Christ, our obedience becomes more and more an expression of our love for him. If we live an obedient Christian life, not if, but as we live that obedient Christian life, it becomes more and more an expression of our love for him. In other words, we... We obey because we want to, rather than because we have to. And notice Jesus is not asking his disciples to do anything that he was not prepared to do. Abiding disciples are actually just following in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And those steps lead to a life that is characterized by both love and obedience. The final incentive is joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Abiding disciples experience the same joy that preserved Jesus through the most difficult few days that we can't even begin to imagine. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that when they had finished with him, he could not be recognized as the man from Galilee bruised and bloodied. 
he made his way to one of the most cruelest forms of capital punishment ever invented. Death by crucifixion. And yet the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's the joy that Jesus is offering you and me. Those who will choose to abide in him and I in you. Jesus' followers are fruit bearers by decision. Abiding in Jesus is not something that is automatic. You just, you just don't sit back and kind of let it happen. It's not going to happen all by itself. Choosing to abide in Jesus Christ fulfills the fruit-bearing prerequisite, and it also embraces the incentives that he provided the 11 here in John chapter 15. Jesus' followers are fruit-bearers by design and by decision. Indeed, you and I, as Jesus' followers, are fruit bearers if you choose to abide. My wish for you and for me is that this life becomes all that God wants it to be. That we bear fruit. More fruit and much fruit by his power and for his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let it be so. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.